Okay, so this is one of my favorite little lectures of the course. Um, we're doing a historical introduction. And in a sense with the, the thought experiment, what would the world look like if we didn't have chastity? So in this course, we're talking about sexual morality, we're talking, saying chastity is important. Well, you Christians, you Catholics say it's important. Well, is it really important? What would the world look like if we didn't have it? Well, we're kind of beginning to see in Western world what the world looks like without chastity, but Patrick Riley's book, Civilizing Sex, gives us, in a sense, a historical answer to that question. We can look back in time before chastity, Christian chastity, changed the world, and we can see what it looked like. And the short summary of today's lecture is that it, it didn't look good, that the world is a better place because of what chastity introduced. And if we can get our culture to return to some vision of chastity as the norm by which to structure our living, our culture will be a better place. So let's start with mind map summary. Um, so chastity changed the world is kind of the key point. Breaking this into three sections, we're going to look at the Canaanite fertility cults. So in the Old Testament, before the Lord takes his chosen people into the land he's given them, he takes them into a land where the practices of the people there were very different from the practices he was going to call his people to live. They had these Canaanite fertility cults. And um, Riley summarizes by saying that these fertility cults attack chastity in two ways. They attack chastity by attacking the root with ritualized, ritual sex in the temple prostitution, which he notes is kind of ritualized unchastity. But then also attack the fruit by the child sacrifice. And I'll comment on this later, but there's a kind of weird irony, but also on one level does make sense where a cult focused on fertility should demand child sacrifice of its adherents. And so the, in terms of archeology, span um, the statues to the god Moloch, um, you know, we can still see these statues, um, statues constructed so that the arms of the god Moloch were stretched out where there'd be a burning fire there for the baby to be put upon. Um, and these are things that are, that there's these references through the Old Testament to this, but they're always passing references, kind of with the assumption that 
the people it's addressed to know what's being talked about. And it's easy for us to kind of glance past these odd illusions. Um, so that's one part. What was chastity like, the world like before chastity? A place of ritualized, ritualized sex, ritualized unchastity in the temple prostitution and child sacrifice. Then we're going to look at Rome and Greece. Um, so as a kind of backdrop, the Council of Jerusalem, you know, the very first council of the church, early church, um, they're trying to decide, well, what do we have to demand of the Gentiles when they convert to Christianity? Uh, well, we don't need to require them to have all the cultic laws of the Old Testament. But what they do make reference to, what they're still very obviously aware of, is certain injunctions, as we'll note, against the Roman and Greek practice. Particularly with respect to chastity. In this context, uh, the Christian faith emphasizes um, bodily purity that goes with belief in the bodily resurrection. And again, this is a thing, it's so easy for us as Christians to just take this for granted. We all are Christian lives, we just presume almost on, on the resurrection of the body, on the afterlife. Um, but this is something new. This is a big deal. Um, you know, we read in when Paul preaches in the Areopagus that they, they mock him for this, this weirdness of talking about the body back. That the, why would the Greek philosophers want to have a body back? You know, they're wanting to escape the body. Um, but bodily resurrection and bodily purity, what you do with your body in life matters is linked with the bodily resurrection. We're going to notice some examples of Roman immorality in this question of unchastity and what that does to society. And then the very curious example that uh, Riley goes through of how the pagan emperor Augustus realizes that unchastity is damaging to his society. So we have a, a pagan attempt to combat unchastity. Implicit within that, the fact that unchastity this is really important for us to be clear about as we're looking at all this in this course. Unchastity destroys society. And what that gives us is therefore a, a social argument for chastity. You know, the government doesn't want to waste money on broken families. 
doesn't want to it wants to have somewhere where children will be securely raised actually we've got a structure like that we've had it for quite a while we call it the family um, then in the contrast with both of these the Christian reform So Riley summarizes a kind of threefold um, armament that the Christians had. They had their intellectual teaching about chastity. They had the discipline of their practice. And he notes the countersign of virginity. Come back to this later, but I think we can, as, as clerics, we can be kind of embarrassed to talk about how significant this was. But it's interesting, he as a lay academic is noting this and saying this had a big impact in terms of the kind of practical power of the message of the Christians. So he says, Two doctrines were pivotal here. Um, the indissolubility of marriage and the superiority of virginity. And then, again, this is a thing we can really fail to grasp how significant this is. Um, that chastity is part of love. That it's not just societal. And the pagan Augustus wouldn't have grasped this. Um, and what that means is we have a whole, a new dignity and form for what's meant by chastity. And that all this has to make reference to the Lord Jesus. That in him there is freedom there is chastity and there is dignity. Lots of studies suggest the majority of ancient Rome, the empire, were slaves. There wasn't much dignity, there wasn't much freedom, and there wasn't chastity. But there's a threefold thing here that the Christian reform brought to the ancient world. What's your first word on the Christian reform? Intellectual. Yeah, it's not usually spelt that way, admittedly. Intel. Yeah, intellectual, however that's...
As you will sadly learn in this course, I don't have the most wonderful handwriting. So when I say write something and it is illegible, just call me out on it. Okay, so that's the summary of what we're going to go through in this lecture. Um, so let's, and I'm presuming you've all had a chance to read this in his book. Um, it's a very unusual book in that it, lots of the things he's saying in there, there are, well, passing references to, to authors quoting these things. But in there he's got footnotes, he's got sources, he kind of details putting together the, the historical contrast between the ancient world and Christian practice, um, what that transition somehow looked like. Um, what I've added in the lecture notes I've got for you here, I've got some more sources that I'm drawing on, but basically I'm just outlining his argument. Most of my lectures with you, I won't just be following a single text as kind of slavishly as I am with this one. Um, but I think his argument here is pretty powerful and worth us focusing on. Would I be right in thinking some of these things we hear generally bandied about, but it's rare to actually have a, a detailed look at them? So. I don't. Um, and when was this book? It was the 90s? It was a long time ago. 2000, 2000 okay. Um, and I don't, it got talked about a bit when it came out. Um, didn't get, didn't get as much attention maybe as I, I now looking at it think it deserved. Um, a lot of people objected to the title because civilizing sex implies there's something wrong with sex. Whereas actually I think really he's literally meaning civilized in terms of um, the city and, and the culture and how sex and culture go together. That's really kind of the argument historically he's going through in the book. The subtitle of his book on chastity and the common good um, we'll come back to this when we look about how he, again arguing historically, is pointing to children as being the primary end of marriage from the argument of the common good in society. And I think, again, it's useful to have a layman arguing that for us um, and in a sociological analysis rather than just looking to the theology. The other author we'll look on at that time is some chap called Perry Cajal. Uh, he also is a layman. He also argues um, for marriage, uh, children as the primary end of marriage. Um, as we'll come on to, that has, has been a debate in recent decades. Even some good scholars saying, well, maybe they're not, maybe ranking the ends of marriage isn't helpful. Post-same-sex marriage debates, I think among orthodox scholars, there's quite a shift where suddenly we thought, actually, you can't really say what marriage is without talking about children very early on in the discussion. 
So I think post-same-sex marriage, it seems much more common to have scholars saying children are the primary end of marriage. I'm not sure I can think of a recent good book arguing what Germaine Griset and others argued, which was trying to say, well, there's kind of a single end that marriage is aimed towards that includes children and union and everything. Um, problem is, is that it's more difficult when you say that to say, well, what actually makes marriage, man and woman, different from other unions? Um, okay, let's look to my lecture notes. and um, I'm going to just talk you through these. So start page one there, summary, two bullet points. A world without chastity is a grim place and we can look at history and see what a chastity-free society looks like. Then make an introductory clarification um, that not all pre-Christian cultures were unchaste. And it's very, very important, you know, whenever you argue something to show kind of the limits of your argument. So Hindu India, we can point to, um, that holds that marriage is faithful and permanent in order to fertility. Um, we can also say natural law. Natural law holds, you know, means that unaided human reason is capable of discerning that man and woman are ordered to each other in a lifelong exclusive union, ordered to the procreation and education of children. So you don't need to be a Christian to grasp that unaided human reason can figure it out. And we can look to other religions and cultures like Hindu India and see that there too. But I say, God chose, what did God choose? Nonetheless, he chose to manifest his teachings on chastity in the midst of cultures that were radically unchaste. So pagan Canaan, before the Hebrews entered the promised land, now, you know, his providence was at work. He somehow knew and chose where he was going to take his chosen people to, what was going to be going on in that place before he took them there. He somehow chose that he would reveal the truths about chastity in a place where unchastity abounded. Similarly with ancient Rome and Greece. And I suggest perhaps his providential plan and obviously, we can't read the mind of God. Very occasionally in the scriptures, he says directly why he does something, but a lot of the time he just does stuff. Um, but perhaps, I say, his plan was that in the stark contrast, his teachings on chastity would shine more clearly. And that chastity in its fullness would be seen as having a relationship with him, the husband of the chosen bride. So that certainly is something, and in the fullness of Christ, shines out more clearly. Maybe that was part of his rationale as well. Okay, moving on to page two. So we've got two pages here in which I'm summarizing um, the Old Testament situation, uh, the Canaanite pagan fertility religion. What was that religion? What was the context? So I say, in a manner that might seem counterintuitive, the fertility religions often mixed child sacrifice with ritual prostitution. So ritual prostitution, 
Um, I know that the harsh Palestinian climate, you know, there wasn't much fertility there, focused religion on fertility cults. And if you try and do your research, the names of the gods there, the pagan gods, the Canaanite gods, they vary over time, um, both male and female. But the Canaanite religion um, is similar to other pagan religions. I, I say here with this, there's this thing, imitating the gods' behavior influenced the gods in what's sometimes called sympathetic ma magic. So the temple worship involved ritual sex, imitating the gods like Baal and Asherah having sex with each other. Um, and it's not just the Canaanite religion that has this, um, other pagan religions had different things where the cult would somehow imitate a thing in the, that the gods were supposed to be doing, you imitate that and that somehow sympathetic magic calls down whatever gift you're wanting from those gods. Because otherwise it seems a bit odd. Why would you, why would having sex with a prostitute in the temple gain you something? So uh, I read in a commentary a couple years ago with Hosea that um, it wasn't so much fertility for the people themselves, but it was more fertility for the land. And by sleeping with a prostitute, it was like the, the God sending rain to the earth to fertilize the earth and bring food. Right, indeed, yes, yes. And then, and then that kind of carried over to, they argued, you know, when God says he's going to marry the land, things like that. Um, so that was going to be one of my questions later on is, you know, how in what way does that maybe influence some of the language used in the prophets with God marrying the land, things like that. Um, but that might sidetrack you. Let's come back to that. Because you're right, I'm not meaning in talking about fertility here to make it just about human fertility. Um, yeah, there's fertility in the broader sense. Wanting your crops to, to bear and your cow to have calves and so forth. Okay, so sacred prostitution, also child sacrifice. So you somehow you return the fruits of fertility to the gods of fertility in a kind of perverse cycle. Okay, then notice a few things. So the Bible, the Bible refers repeatedly to where these offerings took place. So we get these references to the high places, to beneath leafy trees. And I say these phrases were known and understood by the scriptural writers and their original hearers. For example, King Asa was praised for the fact that he purified the religious practice of his people because he took out, away out of the cities of Judah the high places. Yeah. Is that also like the pillars or the sacred I'm not sure if I'm honest. Because um, that's another thing. Uh, the, the, yeah. Yeah, I just don't know how that can, if that connects to the fertility cults or, or not. 
Our next reference here, the Bible refers to pagan gods in this context. And quoting a different author, the Bible uses the verb zona to whore after when referring to foreign gods. The verb is not used metaphorically, i.e. the term is both figurative, unfaithful to God, and literal sexual whoring. So again, there can be a nuanced choice of words there in the scripture that we just kind of glance past and don't realize that there is something, something in particular being referred to there. So Patrick Riley's summary here, he sums up the contrast between Canaan's fertility religions and the Hebrew family chastity by saying that the Canaanite religion as a religion of sexual abandon and child sacrifice, it struck two lethal blows against the family, one at its root and the other at its fruit. Ritual prostitution was institutionalized and indeed sacralized unchastity. If you're going to have sex with a temple prostitute, well, that's going to do something to your marriage with your wife. Um, and the religion is calling on you to do that. Whereas the Hebrew God demanded mastery of sexual desire, not surrender to it. And he summarized saying that the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament thus repeatedly condemn fornication. And the prophets of the Old Testament he describes as having a, a thousand year campaign against Canaanite religion, against the Israel and Judah's apostasies, and against acceptance of the Greek practice in the Maccabean era towards the very end of the Old Testament. And I note, by the time of Christ, finally, the Jewish vision of family life has become firmly established. So as we're reading you know, the Gospels, we don't get any reference to this stuff anymore. It's somehow been so purified out of the land, out of the people, that it, it, it's not even, they're not even passing references. But that it took, as Riley sums it up, a thousand year campaign to reach that stage. Okay, page three, I've got some Bible texts here to um, kind of make some references to where actually we do get this being referred to in the Bible. So in particular, uh, the child sacrifice. So I note the Valley of Hinnom was the center of child sacrifice to the idol Moloch. As I kind of described earlier, babies were burnt in fires in the arms, the outstretched arms of this idol statue Moloch. We read God commanding the Israelites not to engage in this practice. So thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Moloch. Again, if you're not knowing the broader context, what does that mean? Well, you just glance past and move on to the next verse. Um, it obviously meant something. If we know our history, it meant something pretty significant. Um, then note, God gave the Israelites the promised land 
in order they would reject such practices. Um, so to give my voice a rest, um, Daniel, can you read that quote from us? So this is from Deuteronomy. Let there, Let there not be found among you anyone who causes their son or daughter to pass through the fire or practices divination or is a soothsayer, augur, or sorcerer or who casts spells, consults ghosts and spirits or seeks oracles from the dead. Anyone who does such things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of such abominations, the Lord your God is dispossessing them before you. So if we think what's being said there, that's pretty strong. Why is God dispossessing this people of the land? Because they do these horrendous things. So it's not just God is replacing these innocent, nice, decent people in Canaan um, with his own people. No people who he views as performing abominations, he is dispossessing of the land because of that. Um, and among those abominations, in fact, first listed among them is this thing of passing your son or daughter through fire. And again, you know, when I read the Old Testament, it's hard to believe this actually happened, but the Jewish, the, the Hebrew kings reverted back to this practice. So the apostate kings of Judah reinstituted this child sacrifice. Um, can we read these verses? So if you read the first and then Tyler and then moreover. Moreover, he, Ahaz, offered sacrifice in the valley of Ben Hinnom and immolated It was he, Manasseh, to immolate his children by fire in the valley of Benjamin, practiced soothsaying divination, and reintroduced the consulting of ghosts and spirits. In the valley of Benjamin, they go on building the high places of Topheth to sacrifice their sons and daughters by fire, something I never commanded or considered. Christopher. The kings of Judah have filled this place with innocent blood building high places for Baal to burn their children in fires as offerings to Baal. They build the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Mark. And at this valley, where was it? It was just outside Jerusalem. At the time of Christ, it was referred to as the Valley of Gehenna, a foul, rotting place, a place where all the refuse was deposited in the big fire burning. Um, which is pretty significant that this, this place where the evil had happened is the place that becomes the refuse place, the burning fire. Um, and so when the Lord refers to this place of punishment, uh, hell, it's not random that he's choosing to, to make this particular illustration. Okay, let's take a pause in my talking there. Uh, your comments, observations. So this is kind of summarizing uh, the Canaanite context. Thoughts, observations. So this, for me, helps, makes more sense out of why God would want the band once they've crossed over Jordan into the, into the land. Um, it's always kind of been 
just an iffy kind of thing, okay, understands there are foreign people, they're not the chosen people, but you want to kill them all off, not quite understand why. Uh, but then when it's, all right, or those people are doing these things, if you don't get rid of all of them, it's going to somehow stay around. Um, and then we find that, yes, it does stay around because they go back to it over and over again. Um, so it, it really helps to make the band uh, a little more palatable. And the phrase, a little more palatable, it's still problematic. Um, if God hadn't said it, I'd just be a lot more, um, have a lot more difficulty with it. And I think we do need to somehow add to that, even in, even when the scriptures aren't trying to argue and defend that, there are people leaving the pagans and joining them. The fact that there's a process by which pagans can be circumcised and become part of the chosen people. I think is, is part of understanding that. Whereas if you just make these people part of yours and your slaves and your possessions, then you're going to mingle with them, not be purified of them. Other observations, comments? Because? Oh, in the same way, sorry, yeah. 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 It helps situate things a little bit, learning the high place of release for them. I mean, they were pagan, you know, kind of pagan sacrifice mm. centers, but knowing that they were used for burning children, it's a little different. Mm. Deeper, it helps you understand uh, those passages so that you say you don't pass through them, keep going, and realize, okay, this is what we're talking about, fires in the law, passing through fire. It reminds me a little bit in the way of like the Aztecs and then the Lady Guadalupe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems like Am I right in thinking the Aztecs sacrificed other people, not their own people? I think I've uh, read yeah. that. And I'm not sure if I footnote there, but the high places, sometimes those weren't high, but they were, that, that was kind of the original meaning of the phrase. So it, its proper meaning is the places where this happened, rather than necessarily having to be on a mountaintop or something. Other comments? It's interesting too that some of these practices are connected with the like divination of ghosts and spirits and other demonic types of activity. Sorcerers and whatnot. It's an interesting connection. 
yeah, I don't know more than seeing it as an interesting connection how much, or I've not read studies connecting those, but. Yeah, I didn't want to leap there too instantly, but obviously sacrificing your child for the sake of the fertility of the nation, um, sacrificing your child for the sake of material well-being, it's not much of a stretch to see parallels with abortion today. Uh, and yeah, all kinds of things we know of various connections with the occult and, and the abortion industry. Um, things that you'd kind of think, well, I don't, do those need to go together? But often they seem to. And historically at the beginning, somehow they, they went together as well. Okay, let's move along here. So that's kind of summarizing the situation in Canaan. And Remember, what I'm trying to say here, chastity changed the world. Okay, so page four of my notes. So I've titled this page, Early Christians Against the Pagans. So ancient Rome, the empire, as we know, was Roman, but the culture, or at least much of it in its sexual lifestyle, came from the preceding Greek empire. Not entirely, but in large part. Now, I'll come back to what Riley notes about this, but he emphasizes the significance of what was decreed at the Council of Jerusalem. So this is, it decreed that the Gentile converts were not to be circumcised. They were, however, to refrain from three practices that characterize paganism. To abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, i.e. false worship. To abstain from blood, including strangled animals, i.e. disregard for life. That in Mosaic law, blood symbolized life, um, whereas in Greek, Roman paganism, human life had little dignity. And to abstain from fornication, um, i.e. sexual impurity. We'll note the significance of pornea uh, as in terms of the Greek when we come back to divorce and remarriage as well. So, Riley argues, these three virtues, worship of the true God, respect for human life and chastity, are linked ineluctably in history to the social, cultural, and political order that we call Western civilization. The first Christians saw chastity then as a distinctive Christian virtue, closely bound up with a reverence for life that was rare among the pagans, and with a worship of the one true God that was the very antithesis of paganism with its multiple gods. Uh, here, the next little section I'm quoting from Tom Wright. You're all familiar with him as a, so he's now a retired Anglican Bishop of Durham, uh, most famous, I think, for his book on the resurrection. 
N.T. Wright. Yeah, who's the same guy, sorry, yeah. And Ted Shree. Okay, yeah, yeah. N.T. Wright sounds like a respectable academic. Tom Wright um, doesn't, but... <laughs> um, anyway, he's got this massive, big, fat book on the resurrection in which he's going through uh, the significance of the resurrection. His basic argument is um, the resurrection was a completely unexpected event. There was nothing building up to it that meant they could have been expecting an afterlife that would have had a bodily form in this particular um, manner. Even though the Maccabees had held a, a bodily resurrection at the end of time, there had been no preparation for the thought that someone could be bodily resurrected now um, for the Jews. And then he compares that also with the, all the different pagan religions where the Greeks have a notion of the afterlife but it's this kind of dark place down in the underworld where you know you really you don't want to go there. It's very different from the notion of an afterlife that is the fulfillment of everything. Anyway, so he's got this big fat book on the resurrection. But among the things that are significant here and that Riley's arguing is that this changes how you view the body today, and in particular with chastity. So sex, the body, and the resurrection. The Christian lifestyle of bodily sexual purity went with the Christian view of a bodily resurrection. What you do with your body in this life matters because the body matters for all eternity. Then quoting right, resurrection was one of the key things that the church was known and persecuted for. Galen, the great second century doctor from Asia Minor, which we know as Turkey, says he knows only two things about the Christians. One, that they believe in resurrection, and two, that they show remarkable sexual restraint. So here's someone outside of us looking at us saying, these are the two things that make these people different. And kind of the point is that these things aren't randomly linked. Okay, page five here. Um, I just want to map out some of the examples of Roman immorality. Um, So first, exposure of infants. So unwanted babies were left to die. Um, so I say wanted, sorry, not wanted, unwanted infants. So I need to change that. Um, were not directly killed, but left to die. The phrase being exposed to the elephants, uh, elements. Um, and then I'm footnoting various other sources here on this in Alexandria. The custom was to dispose of them on a particular trash dump. The economic motive, the instinct to restrict society to profitable members, meant economic infanticide. And it survived all through Roman history in the practice known as exposure. By exposure I mean a system recognized by law and society 
under which it was possible for a man of wealth and standing to order his legitimate children to be abandoned, presumably to die, because he already had enough or for some other reason did not care to accept the responsibility for their rearing. Such a system undoubtedly existed in ancient Greece. So Greece and Rome culturally united in this practice. Uh, remind me. When he's talking about the Spartan culture, how they always look at the child after birth and examine it for any defects, and if it was defective, they just chuck it out into the garbage. Mm -hmm. so, I just have that image of that description. You say, oh, this child isn't one arm shorter than the other. Mm -hmm. Any defect at all. Yeah. And not directly strangled, not drowned, exposed to the elements just left there. And I guess we all know that the early Christians came to be characterized by the fact that they would, among other things, rescue these abandoned babies and raise them as their own. Um, we'll come back to this when we start the bioethics course next semester. But the way Christian, the early Christians lived out what they believed in this regard, also in terms of how they cared for plague victims when um, secular Rome, secular Greece would just, the rich people would flee, the Christians, the Christian leaders stayed there and cared for the sick, including the sick that weren't of their own religion. If you hold to the dignity of human life and you follow that through, people are gonna see you living a different life. And that living of a different life is part of what won early converts to Christianity. Maybe, I don't know. And I also don't know, you know, one of the things with Augustus is Roman law wasn't entirely static in some things. Um, okay, exposure of infants. Abortion. I note that the unborn child had no protection in ancient Rome. Now, abortion was sometimes forbidden on the grounds that it restricted a father's right to his offspring, but not because the infant him or herself had a right to life. I pagan writers condemn abortion, but for very different reasons than Christians. And the, the Christian view of the sanctity of life simply wasn't found in ancient Rome or Greece. Contraception, and uh, here again, I'm not quoting Riley, another author, say that while ancient methods might not be as effective as the modern pill, contraception isn't a new phenomenon. So um, quoting Hopkins there, it's long been recognized that the upper class Romans in their desire for small families practiced abortion on a large scale. What is not as well known is the extent to which these same upper-class Romans were concerned about contraception. Some of the methods advocated by Greek and Roman doctors could have been very effective, and aspects of ancient contraceptive theory were as advanced as any modern theory 
before the middle of the 19th century. So again, this is a difference in Roman immorality and what the Christians came into, came along with. Marriage. Now here again, a very significant thing that we could just fail to, to see as a difference. In ancient Rome, few marriages were romantic. Most were arranged and economic. And chastity, in as much as existed, was thus not romantic and affective, but societal. Unchastity was a problem because it affected other people, not because it was somehow uh, an, against your own spouse. Um, I'll come back to that. So divorce, linked with this, divorce was simple in ancient Rome and frequent. And this manifestly undermined family life and the stability of a home to raise children. But you could um, flip from one spouse to another, to another, to another, as long as you followed the legal proceedings. And because marriage was economic and political, as the political power shifted, it would make sense to shift your, your marriage as well. Then the last example here, uh, adultery. So I note that infidelity per se wasn't an issue. That a married man might have sex outside marriage as long as he didn't have sex with a married woman, i.e. a woman belonging to another man, and thus offend him. But a married woman didn't have the same equality before the law. So we might find an ancient Roman speaking badly about adultery, but not for the same reasons and rationale as a Christian would. Which comes down to a very different notion of what chastity means. Any comments at this stage? Observations? Okay, then Riley summarizes the reforms or attempted reforms of the Emperor Caesar Augustus, who obviously we know as the man who issued the first census. Uh, yeah, um, but anyway, he did other things too. I say here, though he was pagan, he was among those who deplored the profligacy and dissipation of the times as destructive of society. Put briefly, the founder of the Roman Empire, i.e. Augustus, fostered chastity as if the survival of his tremendous enterprise, the empire, depended upon it. Note also um, that other Roman historians commenting on their own society as pagans wrote of the pagan moral degradation of Rome, so Livy and Tacitus, so it's not just Augustus, we can see other writers commenting on this as well. Okay, I then try and summarize, I say, to the ancient Roman mindset, what would have been kind of seen as the problem. Moral decline might be outlined thus. The good of society depended on the raising of children and of sexual relations being confined within marriage. 
In contrast, wealthy Romans were having smaller families to maintain their wealth, thereby weakening Roman, Roman society, that there was a dearth of children. In addition, widespread slavery weakened morality. As Riley puts it, slaves were the natural prey to the lust of their masters and mistresses. So what does Augustus do? Well, he introduced a law against adultery. That the first time in Roman history, adultery becomes a civil crime. In addition, uh, seducing a virgin or respectable widow was also punished, with other specifics punishing other cases of adulteries. Um, and those who indulge their unspeakable lust with males. Simultaneously, he offered privileges for marriage to discourage singleness among the aristocratic Romans. And privileges were awarded to parents of three or more children. Further, he promoted family by, for example, linking marrying and producing offspring that survived to the age of a year, to the granting of citizenship to slaves. And note that this government policy discouraged parents from killing their infants by exposure. But in summary, it's, however, it's unknown what effect the law had and it fell into disuse after him. In short, Augustus saw a problem tried to remedy it, uh, but it would seem he failed. Comments here? I think it's just a good example of using natural reason and common sense to arrive at some conclusions that we hold in a Christian culture uh, that we've held to about marriage and family and all these things. We don't have to say it comes from the Bible to You can also see a little bit though why it didn't work, because um, there's nothing about like fulfillment and a better life and happiness, and it's just like, oh, this is good for society, so you have to do it. Kind of mm. There's nothing like about you being better or happier. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good observation. Which that makes me think of China and how. Uh, you know, they had the one-child policy, but now it's getting to the point where they're offering incentives for families to have more children because they realize they're top-heavy, they're, they're losing their population. And, uh, but even with the incentives, couples are not having more children because it's just too expensive and too difficult in their mind. And in the West, for some decades now, we've taken for granted that, you know, a couple will hold on to their wealth by not having children and children being seen as a problem. And, um, that, that, you know, these, some of these are very problems that have recurred again and again in the society. And they're bad for society is the thing that Riley's indicating here, which is why the subtitle of his book is, is referring to the common good. And our politicians never talk about this. So in Britain, you know, we had um, over a million poles um, brought into England, in, brought in in the sense that there were uh, legal 
things done to make it very easy for them to come because they would be coming across as young workers. And it was never mentioned, why do we not have any workers of our own? Well, because for two generations we've killed them in abortion and prevented them in contraception. And society needed young workers, so we better get them from somewhere else. Okay, moving on. Page seven. So, I've titled this page, Christianity Against Pagan Rome's Unchastity. I start noting Augustus's brief campaign against unchastity bore no lasting effect. And then quoting Riley, he says, in contrast, against the sexual immorality of the age, the church could bring the intellectual armament of her teaching, the wholesome severity of her discipline, the unsettling example of her faithful adherence, and finally, and perhaps most important for the eventual disappearance of Roman pansexualism, the astonishing countersign of consecrated virginity and celibacy. So Christians, what did they do? Well, they did not practice abortion or exposure of infants. In fact, they rescued abandoned infants left in exposure. Clement of Alexandria, for example, condemned abortion as stemming from human license and denounced wealthy women who exposed their infants to die while taking pet animals, preferring irrational creatures to rational. And Felix, in contrast to the Romans' frequent divorce and remarriage, writes, we cling freely to the bond of one marriage. In the desire to procreate, we know one wife or none. And Riley argues, as I break it down there, A, two doctrines made Christian chastity distinct from pagan Rome. One, the indissolubility of marriage, with no divorce and remarriage, unlike pagan Rome. And two, the superior dignity of virginity, a wholesome antidote to defeatism in sexual matters, thus helping ensure a chaste and therefore prolific society. And then B, as I said, this I think is, is very significant. Chastity itself is transformed by marriage being part of love, the new commandment. Chastity is no longer just an external constraint to enable marriage to serve the common good. Rather, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her to make her holy. This utterly revolutionizes marriage. That many, many non-Roman pagan religions had romantic marriages, but none with the dignity of purpose that the Christians come along with here. Quoting Corinthians, be patient, kind, never jealous, never rude or selfish. It's a very high vision of married love here. Again, quoting Riley, chastity, now, in, now expressible as a part of love of God and neighbor is lifted into a transcendently loftier realm. And similarly, consecrated virginity is embraced as love of the same God. Okay, any comments here?
there's a lot here to um, these different sections, different points he's, he's arguing. Yeah. God forbid they see anybody torture a puppy or something, but they'll let people kill children. They'll kill children themselves. Yeah, I think there's a lot of the like, oh, the pet mom, pet dad. It's like, no, talking like that, even if you respect the dignity of human life and other, you're not for abortion kind of shit, but like, treating a pet as a child is just as much part of the culture of death as some of those other things. It seems to me. No, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. People spending thousands of dollars on cancer, pet food. That would be an easy thing to preach on, though. Yeah. Right. Okay, other observations on this page? Yeah, there's a lot of embarrassment in the church today to talk about virginity as an objectively higher state of life than marriage. That we kind of have the, the, the narrative common today in the church that, well, we don't say anything against marriage. But it is in the doctrine of the church that as a state of life, virginity is, objectively speaking, a higher calling, a higher state. Um, and Riley's arguing here in a way that's parallel to the theology John Paul II articulates in the theology of the body, that that actually does something to somehow boost marriage, not, not denigrate it. That chastity is possible, that all of this is worthwhile, that somehow that helps marriage, doesn't hinder it. We'll come back up to that point um, when we only an overview, sadly, look at the theology of the body. Okay, my last page, page eight here. Um, so just to note that the change that happened in Christian practice wasn't overnight. There's a whole culture to be changed. How did it happen? So I've titled this page, A Slow But Profound Change. So Christians remained a minority for centuries. The Edict of Constantine in 313 didn't instantly convert the whole empire. For example, pagan religious practice wasn't banned and pagan sexual morals weren't outlawed. But, so here I'm ending by coming back to Riley's um, threefold focus of the decree of the Council of Jerusalem. Worship, 
Well, Constantine instituted a weekly day of rest that apparently hadn't been there before. So that fosters both physical health, but makes Christian religious practice have a kind of preeminent status, favored status. Chastity in family life, well, he restricted unilateral divorce. He forbade married men from having concubines and forbade slaves, slave families being se separated. And then respect for human life, well, he abolished gladiatorial combat. He guaranteed sunlight, fresh air, and physical safety to prisoners awaiting trial. Whereas abolishing slavery, a practice thoroughly impregnated, impregnating the Roman culture and economy, Riley notes was a monumental task, uniquely Christian and otherwise unknown to history, but a task that took many centuries to actually be lived out. Um, so I've then got a significant but long block quote there from Riley uh, summarizing so where he's linking the transformation of pagan Rome by linking slavery, dignity, and chastity. So to read out. If the world was delivered from slavery through an appreciation of human dignity, if that is an abiding awareness of human worth proved to be the historical foundation of our universal freedom, then freedom becomes, along with virtue, a living symbol of our worth. This impinges on chastity itself. Because human sexuality is an integral part of the human person, because it is the source of human life, its dignity, like human freedom, stems from human dignity itself. Now the perfection of human sexuality is chastity. By perfecting human sexuality, chastity enhances human dignity. But in perfecting our sexuality, it also enhances our freedom because it makes us master of our sexual instincts rather than their servant or even slaves. It frees us from what Sophocles, according to Plato, called a kind of frenzied and savage master. So he's arguing freedom, chastity, dignity, not known in ancient Rome, are part of the Christian practice and are part of the, the Christian reform. Comments here, kind of synthesizing all of this together. Frequently they like the convenient parts of it, yeah. but not the, the kind of hard work, the discipline, the commitments.
Yeah, and the line you quote, husbands love your wives, it's hard to think that that was news. Um, but there's a reason he feels he had to say it, that it was, it was news. Um, and we can obviously concede there must have been many Romans where the husband living with the wife did come to love each other, but that that wasn't the essence of marriage in their culture and law. Okay, summing up. Um, why have I wanted to start my course? So we had a, a little introduction talking about the new evangelization uh, and where chastity fits in that package. I'm wanting to look at this whole question about how chastity changed the world historically to likewise um, the obvious implications here in terms of the significance of chastity for the new evangelization, because in the first evangelization it was hugely significant. Also for us to start this course convinced um, that this isn't a set of random rules and regulations and laws that we're wanting to impose on our parishioners or on the broader culture, but that this is a gift, this is a better way of living. And therefore we've got to look at the detail in this course pretty seriously um, to get it right. Okay, let's close in prayer.